Good to see so many here this evening. I know it's the, this morning. It is this morning. Uh, I know it's the beginning of kind of a holiday week. We have lots of visitors already with us. A lot of our college kids are home, and we certainly are grateful for that. In our high school class this morning, we were in 1 Corinthians, and we were talking about that section where where Paul is talking about the this the worship service and about the need for some order uh, in in the worship service that it shouldn't be a three ring circus be a free for all and and there needs to be a little at least a little structure and organization to it and so I was talking to our kids and and I was saying you know we've done a really good job of achieving that uh, I said. You know, we pretty well know you can tell me exactly what's going to happen when we go upstairs for worship service. And I said, so, you know, tell me what's going to happen. Well, somebody said the first thing that's going to happen is the announcements. And somebody else said, no, the first thing that's going to happen is the march down the center of the aisle. Good call. And then we're going to sing. And I said, how many songs? I said two. Then we're going to have a prayer. And then we're going to sing another song and then we're going to have communion and then we're going to sing another song and then we're going to sing an, another song. And I said, let's be specific, the invitation song. And I, they said, and then we're going to sing another song. I said, let's be specific, the closing song. And then we're going to have a closing prayer. So far, you're right on track, Ronald. Just so you know, you did not announce the invitation. Do you want to? No. Okay. It'll be a surprise. All right. Keep us on our toes. 943 if you're using a book and want to mark it. Uh, And so then I said, well, have you ever seen exceptions to that? And so I say, well, maybe they'll only sing one song at the beginning or maybe they'll sing three or maybe they'll sing two after the prayer or, you know, different thing here or there. Uh, And then one of them said, well, sometimes if the preacher goes too long. They'll skip the closing song and just go right to the closing prayer. They must have been talking about you. That's all I could figure out. Because I can't imagine that that would have happened with me. But with that introduction, it's liable to happen this morning. We have been looking at for the last several weeks, the little letter called we call 1 John. And one of the things we noticed as we went through and did our introduction is we don't have to wonder why John wrote this letter. He tells us. And uh, first of all, he tells us we write to make our joy complete. Then he says we write so that you do or I write so that you do not sin. And then he says I write concerning those who are trying to lead you astray. And then he says I write so that you may know that you have eternal life. And as we look through this letter as a whole, we notice that there were kind of four things that John mentions that matter. And first of all, he says that doctrine matters. And he was trying to write or he was writing in order to refute some false teachings, which tells us right away there is such thing as false teaching. There is such thing as wrong doctrine. And John comes along and says, it's not just that you believe, it's what you believe. And what you believe matters. And one of the reasons that what you believe matters is because it, what you believe tends to drift into your lifestyle. And that's why holiness matters. 
The false teaching specifically that he was refuting was this idea that there's a total separation between the physical and the spiritual. And whatever you do in the physical, whatever you do with the physical body, whatever you do, you know, whatever, that does not affect your spiritual. And so if that's your doctrine, if that's what you believe, that is going to lead you into a wrong way of living, a wrong lifestyle. And so John wants to remind us that holiness matters. And then he does remind us that love matters. We'll sort of kind of start that this morning. And then he finishes up with confidence matters. We ought to be confident about our salvation. He wrote so that we could know that we have eternal life. Last week, we talked about the fact that knowing God means obeying. And that knowing God means walking as Jesus walked. Now, one of the difficulties in preaching through 1 John is the reoccurrence of topics. You know, he'll bring up a topic here and then leave it for a while and then bring it up again here. And and as as you're preaching through it, that makes it a little more difficult. You know, are you going to, are you going to preach about the same thing five times? Some of you think that's what I do anyway. Or are you just going to preach about it once or, you know, and so that's kind of what makes it a little difficult. In chapter two, verses seven through 14, John introduces the topic of love for each other. He returns to that topic in chapter three and in chapter four. So what we're going to do is we are going to postpone this topic until we get further in our discussion and then kind of cover it more in its entirety when we get to chapter three and chapter four. But today I want us to look at chapter or chapter two, verses 15 through 17. John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now it's interesting that in this little letter in which John talks so much about God's love for us and our love for God and our love for each other, that in these verses we see a love that God hates. A love that God does not want us to have. And he says here, do not love the world. Wow. And so we're going to see that what uh, John gives us is three reasons that we should not love the world. And the first reason is because of what the world is. Because of what the world is, we should not love the world. Now, in the New Testament, world has at least three different meanings. First of all, there is the physical world, the, 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 the world of creation. The world of nature, 
you know, the trees and the sun and the moon and the, well, depending on your definition of world, but you know, the trees and the grass and all that, you know, that that's the world, the world that God created. There is also the human world or mankind, we might say. And this is why in John three and verse 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God isn't talking, God didn't, that's not talking about God's love for nature or creation. That's not what he's talking about here. God so loved the trees and the flowers that he gave his one and only son. Well, we understand that's, that's not what John is saying. For God so loved the world, for God so loved mankind, for God so loved humanity that he gave his one and only son. And isn't it interesting that if you don't make a distinction in the word world, we have a total contradiction, do we not? John says, do not love the world. But then John also says, for God so loved the world. Wow. I bet you never thought of that as a contradiction. No, you didn't because you're smarter than that. Because you understand that in these two passages, John is using the word world in two different ways. In John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world, it's talking about humanity. Humankind. And in 1 John chapter 2, when he says, do not love the world, he's talking about something different. Jesus walked among both the first two worlds, the physical and the human. In John chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, he, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. Jesus was in the world, the physical world. He created the physical world, but the world did not know him. Mankind did not know him. Mankind did not recognize him because we know that the physical world did recognize him. The storms and the waves are going around and Jesus says, peace be still. Poof. Yeah, the physical world recognized Jesus. Jesus comes walking on the water. Jesus overcame or was above the physical world. But the humanity world, mankind did not know him or recognize him. But the warning to not love the world is not about creation. And it's not about mankind. We are to love and appreciate and respect God's creation. We are also to love people, even sinners, as God did. But there is a third way that world is used. And it's used to describe a system, essentially. And we use it that way even in our language. We will talk about in the world of sports, in the world of politics, in the world of economics. And we understand that we're talking about a system there specific to that, you know, agenda, as it were. 
In this sense, the world, as John is using in 1 John, is the system in which Satan opposes the work and the will of God in the human world. It is the system by which Satan is trying to destroy and infiltrate the human world, mankind. It's what he is up to. It is a place where he rules and has influence in the lives of mankind. It is the spiritual world here, in essence. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, in a little bit, John is going to say, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. Ooh. The whole world is under control of the evil one. But not us. Because we are children of God. We are children of God. We are not of that world. Now we're of this world. You know, we're on the planet. We're of the humankind world. We're we're living and breathing human beings. But we are not of that world. Of which Satan has control. In John chapter 12 and verse 31. Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Now don't misunderstand me. We know and we understand. And we're not confused about the fact. That God is over all. And that God is all powerful. But in this worldly realm, Satan is in control. Satan is in control of the hearts and the minds of mankind until they turn their hearts and minds over to God. And then we have the victory. Then we can be assured and we can have confidence. But seriously, right? All we got to do is pick up the newspaper, turn on the television, and we can see that Satan is ruling in this world. Because this world is his domain. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that Satan has an organization of evil spirits working for him. And that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the evil beings in that spiritual place. As Christians... We live in the physical world and we are members of the human world, but we do not belong to Satan's spiritual world. We sing that song, this world is not my home. This world is not our habitat. It is not where we belong. We are foreigners, we are travelers whose citizenship is in a different place. I read something this week in one of the books I was reading that I thought explained it better than I've ever heard it before. Because, you know, we often use that about travelers and strangers and foreigners in a foreign land and all of that. He went even a little deeper with it. He said it's really more like being a scuba diver. The water is not our natural habitat. We cannot live... In the water, or under the water at least. But with special equipment, with special stuff, a scuba diver can live, at least for a time, 
in an unnatural habitat. And that's exactly like us. This world, once we become a Christian, this world is not our habitat. We cannot live in this world any longer because we've been translated out of it. We are different now, but God provides us special equipment to survive in this habitat that is not natural to us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And when I was thinking of that, the writer that that I was reading didn't make this connection, but it seemed obvious to me. I was like, why didn't you make this connection? It's like that oxygen that a scuba diver uses and breathes through. The Holy Spirit lives within us and gives us breath and gives us the ability to live in this unnatural habitat. In Ephesians 6, he talks about the fact that we have the armor of God. We have all the equipment to live our lives out in this unnatural of habitats. We're not made for here. We can't go back. A couple, a week or so ago, I was watching with my granddaughters. Well, with one of them. The other one was just running around acting crazy. But I was watching uh, Little Mermaid Live. Did any of y'all see that? You know, if you did, good. If not, okay. You know, and the whole idea was, is that, you know, once mermaid, what's her name? Ariel. Ariel, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's how much I was into it too. I was thinking there's a football game on. But anyway... Once Ariel came out of the sea and went on the land, she couldn't go back anymore because she now had a new body that was, you know, made for the land and not made for the sea. And I may be messing the story up, but it's in there somewhere, sort of, because I'm making this illustration. (laughs) When we are translated out of this world into God's world. We can't go back. We can't go back. Because it is unnatural for us to do so. But it's not just about what the world is. It's about what the world does. In chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the world or love for the world separates us from God's love. You you can't be hanging on in both environments. You cannot love the world and be of the world and still have God's love. They are mutually exclusive, John tells us here. Jesus said it this way, right? No one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You can't have it both ways. You cannot be in both worlds. And if we love this world and we are consumed with the desires and with the pleasures and everything else of this world, then God's love is not in us. We cannot have fellowship with God. 
John tells us that Satan uses three devices to trap us. First of all, he talks about the cravings of a sinful man. King James Version says lust of the flesh. Others will say the desire of the flesh. Certain cravings and desires are natural. Part of our humanness. Part of how God created us. Hunger is natural. Thirst is natural. Weariness is natural. Sexuality was given to us by God. And what Satan's world does is it takes those natural desires and tempts us to satisfy them in destructive ways. You see, Satan is dummy. So Satan comes along and says, hey, hunger's hunger. There's nothing wrong with hunger. And there's nothing wrong with satisfying hunger. But gluttony is a sin. Hey, thirst is natural. There's nothing wrong with being thirsty. There's nothing wrong with wanting to quench your thirst. But drunkenness is a sin. There's nothing wrong with being tired. There's nothing wrong with weariness. There's nothing wrong with sleep in order to recharge yourselves. But laziness is a sin. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. There's nothing wrong in and of itself in the act of of sex itself. But outside of the sanctity of marriage, sex is wrong. And yet we have these desires that Satan is saying, fulfill them, fulfill them. These are natural, so it's natural to fulfill them. And God says it is natural to fulfill them in certain Situations in the right confines in how I have instructed. We can think and we go and we think about then that John also says there is the lust of the eye. Lust of the eye. Envy. Covetousness. Sexual lust. Those are the things that catch our eye and start the process. Not only, again, Satan not being an idiot he makes sin appealing he makes it look good he makes it pleasing to the eye second samuel chapter 11 david up on the rooftop of the palace on the wall of the palace and he looks down and behold there's a woman bathing and i love the next verse because it says and she was Beautiful. Well, how did David know? Because David took a long look. David fixated and focused on her. David could have said, could he not, as he's walking around, whoa, there's a woman bathing over there and just kept on going. But that's not what happened. David's walking along the roof. Whoa, there's a woman bathing over there. Hmm. We'll check that out for a while. I'm going to find out who she is. I'm going to have her brought to the palace. The lust of the eye. You remember when the Israelites cross over the Jordan River and Joshua leads them and they totally destroyed Jericho. Remember that? 
The walls fall down. They march around one time for six days, seven times, on the seventh day. Walls come tumbling down. Woo, they go in. Woo! Wow! And God promises them, if you do what I say, this is how it's going to be everywhere you go. And so they decide it's the next city is Ai. So we're going to go up and we're going to defeat Ai. And Joshua, he's so confident in God that he says, I'm not even going to send the whole army. I'm just going to send half of them. Just send half of them up to Ai. They get destroyed. And they get humiliated. And they get defeated. And Joshua comes back and says, God, what's up with that? You promised. You said. And God says, I said, if you obey me. Somebody in the camp didn't obey me. You remember when they took Jericho, God said, everything in Jericho is mine. When we go to these other places, you're going to be able to split up the spoils. But Jericho is mine. And so come to find out a man by the name of Achan. After the battle of Jericho had taken some of those things that were supposed to be devoted to God. And because of his disobedience, the Israelite army was defeated. But notice what Achan says in his interrogation. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon. 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. Oh, man. That looked just too good to give to God. Have you ever said that maybe at the dessert counter or the restaurant? It was just calling my name. That's what Aiken said. That beautiful robe, it was just calling my name. Those 200 shekels of silver, they were just calling my name. That wedge of gold, it was just calling my name. It just looked so beautiful. I wanted it. So I took it. The lust of the eye. What we see and what we gaze on affects our minds and our souls. And therefore, we ought to guard our hearts and guard our souls by guarding our eyes, by guarding what we look at. There are going to be times when we don't have a choice. It's just there. But there are other times when we put ourselves in danger by putting things in front of our eyes that we have no business seeing the lust of the eye and then he goes on and he talks about the pride of life vanity the need to have approval from the world keeping up the with the joneses the need to feel superior the need to have respect at all costs vanity and pride can ruin our relationship with god I think I'm smarter than God. I think I understand God. I'm not going to do what God says because if I do this, it's going to make me, you know, have more respect in the community or my peers or whatever. He talks about the vanity of life or the pride of life. The very first sin ever reveals all three of these tools of Satan being used 
in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh, ooh, that's going to taste so good. Mmm, that's going to be yummy. When the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Woo! Well, that looks pretty good. I'm going to have some of that. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. The pride of life. Vanity. We have all three of them right there with Eve. She took and she ate. God is calling us not to live according to this world. It is through these same three temptations that Satan world separates us from God and destroys our fellowship with him and with each other. So we don't want to love the world because of what the world is. We don't want to love the world because of what the world does to us. Uh, thirdly, we do not want to love the world because of where the world is going. This world, he says, is passing away. We are travelers here. We are strangers here because we are waiting for something much better. Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight, Peter writes, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, the Lord with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. This is coming to an end. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of Of the righteous. The things of this life will not last. In fact, they can even be taken from us right now. We don't have to wait till the end of the world. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moths and the rust and the thieves will come in and fire and destroy it all? How many times have we had something that we just put a lot of value in and it was taken from us? It was taken from us. Several years ago, when we got a little money, I bought a pickup truck. I had always wanted a pickup truck. You live in East Texas, you ought to have a pickup truck, right? Never could afford a pickup truck. Finally, I got a pickup truck. And I was kind of proud of that pickup truck. And I won't go into exactly what happened, 
But not long after I had that pickup truck, there was a scratch all the way down the side of the pickup truck. And to be honest with you, one of the few times I've probably reacted like I'm supposed to. For a brief moment, I was like, what? I can't believe. And then I thought, you know what? It's just a pickup truck. It's just a pickup truck. And I never got it fixed. I never had them buff it out or paint it or whatever. Because I wanted to use that as a reminder to me. That the things of this life are not important. That they're going to pass away. Fast forward about 12 years. I trade that pickup truck in. And I buy me a new pickup truck. Nice and shiny. Sparkling new. And it was when we were redoing the playground over here. And I had gone to the the feed store or whatever. And I had gotten some sacks of uh, Bermuda grass seed. To sprinkle out there where the dirt had been torn up. To try to get some grass to grow out there. My belt came off. I don't know what that means. Shouldn't have had, shouldn't have had that biscuit, Betty. It's your fault. So I opened those gates out there on Mark's driveway. And I am backing my brand new. Now I'm talking two days old. I am backing my brand new pickup through that gate. And I hear, and I thought that cannot be because I was looking through the the mirrors. I had enough clearance. I did, except for the little latch thing that hung out over. And now in my second brand new pickup truck. There is a scratch all the way down the side. Because no, I didn't stop, you know, of course, when I heard it. I've not fixed it either. And I'm not going to. Because I think that's twice. That God has tried to remind me that the things of this world do not matter. A scratch on a pickup truck, that's... Really, that's not that big of a deal in the whole realm of things. But whether it's our possessions, whether it's our health, whether it's our popularity or prestige, all those things can be taken away from us in an instant. But it doesn't matter. Because this is not permanent. All of this is going away at some point. And Jesus said that he's gone to prepare a place for us. The writer of Revelation says he saw a new heaven and a new earth where all the old things had passed away. Especially, and you know how much I love this, especially the crying, the sadness, the death, the pain, 
All of that is going away too. And as God children, we look forward to that place of eternal fellowship with God. But we cannot go there if we love this world. We can't go. John tells us not to love this world or anything in this world. Not talking about nature, not talking about people, talking to us about the world of Satan and sin. In fact, we should be repelled by this world. We should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We should long and pant for God as the deer. We should be like the scuba diver in the water, out of our element, but protected by God's resources. Till that time he comes to take us home. If there's some way we can help or encourage you this morning, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.com. Dot org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.